Hello, hello! I'm Chris. I'm Preston. And welcome to another episode of Just Two Dudes Reading Theory. And this week we are reading an essay from V.F. Cordova, who is one of the first Native American women to receive a PhD in philosophy in our country. And if you're like, oh, what was that? You know, like 1890s or something? Uh, the article we're reading is from 2001. So yeah. pretty recent, actually. Very. Um, that's not when she got her PhD, but that's uh, she still was still alive and working very much. And uh, the article we're reading is called Time, Culture, and Self. And it was actually published in American Indians in Philosophy, edited by Ann Waters and V.F. Cordova. This is the first issue, volume one, number one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really enjoyed it. I thought it was oh, great. I thought it was fantastic. S- super clear. You know, um, some of my favorite analogies about like Christianity I've ever heard. So that that's yeah. gonna be fun getting into that. It was it was a good one. I really liked this. Yeah. So in the opening letter from the co-editors, Ann Waters and Cordova make an argument about philosophy where they say, you know, it's not like we're supposed to gather everything together as sort of oddities of human experience just to like kind of in a menagerie or a collection of difference around the whole world. The whole point is actually they write to determine when the views are placed side by side, the capacity of human thought. And I think that's an argument about what philosophy should be as a whole. Instead of what Deleuze said, which is to expand consciousness, basically. Mm. Um, Instead, it's to articulate the capacity of human thought. Like, what as a whole one can think. Which Which I kind of really like that. Yeah. I mean, it's, (laughs) it's a lot of... At least for me, how I've kind of done a lot of the philosophy that we've read, it's not like I read Sartre and was like, well, I'm an existentialist now. Right. You know, that's, uh, it's just, that's my path and that's what I'm studying. We're no. <laughs> exploring different avenues of thought and comparing them to other ones. And I, I don't know, I kind of like... I kind of like that approach a lot. Yeah, and and the point for them, one point is to broaden the membership of the philosophy table. Obviously, so that instead of saying... They make this great point. I forget if it's in the essay or in the letter. That, like, so much that has been written about American Indians has been from the perspective of white people... Gathering uh, data on what they believed. <laughs> the experience of American indigenous peoples to be spoken of and for and not with. Right. It's like they... It just reeks of condescension. Yes. To do this whole like, oh no, we've got your back. We'll take over and go ahead and, and speak for you of your experiences and how, yes. how rough it is. It's like, um... Or maybe make them a 
part of the conversation. And I think I think we've actually in the last ten years been doing more in the broader culture, um, listening to the experience of indigenous Americans in terms of not just like (laughs) there's this ancient wisdom hidden in America that people will find instead of that trans transposing into no, there's cultures that aren't actually frozen in time. People are alive. Yeah. They're doing things now (laughs) and they're not going to be the same that we do or others do. And that's the point is that I think, you know, I think like um, there is this funny analogy of like you could miss you could make this mistake immediately when you go to another country where you go to another country and you see a product being sold and you go, oh, well, this is a product that's part of their culture, blah, 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 blah. And then you actually interview a person from said culture and they were like, yeah, you know, you guys keep buying this shit. So we keep making it <laughs> 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 or, or, or whatever. Right. Like it's not. It's not this one track system. Um, And obviously we'll get more into that whenever we do Edward Said's uh, book, Orientalism. But for now, there's a certain gloriousness to having a space, Mm. even if it's a small space. Now, that's contrasted with, in my opinion, a real backwards mentality that I think we still have in America. When I looked up VF Cordova... There's a book of her work published, but most of the other stuff is found in journals. And I think it's important that to show the labor that it requires as an indigenous person to get heard. This is her own journal, basically. I, right? <laughs> right? Like finding a journal so that then you have your own, you occasion your own venue for speaking. And, um, nice. Yeah. You know? I, it's, and it's, good hopefully uh hopefully more people start giving more attention to this i think it's happening you you make a great point of how in like a lot of modern culture we've like stuck them in this position as if they had no ability to continue to evolve like the rest of us are we still wearing buckles on our hats you got your old buckle hat in the closet there, Chris? Yeah, yeah, right. And then, like, it's like the idea of Indians versus cowboys, oh, <laughs> right? God. You know, and it's like, well, the cowboy, I mean, one could argue that has has seamlessly stayed the same. <laughs> but but the Native American has not. And so there's a lot of things that are great about this. The first thing um, in enjoying this essay is that VF Cordova makes the argument that while you have thousands of different tribes and other affiliate nations across the country, we can boil some things down. And how she's going to do it is say, well, we can boil things down in Western thinking as well first. And so we first get this narrative of the religious versus the secular narrative of existence, right? And she makes it so intimately about time, right? So the Christian time... Um, you know, one example of that, of course, is like for Christians, since the, almost the very beginning, the imminent arrival of a second coming of Jesus seems to be implied. 
it is perpetually yep. imminent, no matter how long it actually takes yes, in clock it's time. it's always right around the corner. And that's, in a sense, symbolic, right? Like, that is a time that's not a literal passing of time. That's something added extra to the sun goes around every day or however what other way people orient time in the so-called natural world this is not that yeah and this is not the time we're talking about and she contrasts that with the secular view of infinite growth and progress mm. you know infinite movement forward yes um in a sort of more I mean, I would argue a much better view of time because we don't give ourselves this weird end point. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> I always I feel just... that it's like almost child abuse to teach kids that like the world might imminently oh. end at any moment. <laughs> I think that's a terrible... I'm going to agree with you there. I think it is uh, an inherently more positive way to live if you don't believe that an extraterrestrial is going to bring about the end of the world. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. And so, Preston, tell, tell us about... <laughs> this is my favorite. What, well, who's the extraterrestrial in this? What is? How does so, she describe Christianity? As Cordova puts it, in the Christian version of human appearance, an extraterrestrial being creates the universe, the planet, and then places humans at the center of concern. Um... I also love this short little bit they talk about with the, uh, like, Western Christian thinking that human beings are somehow special in nature and we are above everything else. All of it's for us. We do what we want because it's all for us. And that is not a belief shared by a lot of other cultures and it's also yeah. an incredibly incorrect belief in my opinion i think it, i think so i think the problem with that belief is that it leads to what like you know an instrumental view of human reason it, it's a, it's a view that we can use the atomic bomb because reasons now as as we'll cover when we get to adorno horkheimer and the rest of the frankfurt school the idea of the enlightenment progress that cordova talks about here is slightly more subtle than what she's going to present right because see we have to boil this down in like a four-page paper but um i think that the impact of world war ii and the current ecological crisis are gateway drugs to changing the viewpoint of other objects as mere as mere objects mm. Instead, I, I think there is a i think many schools of thought over the last 50 years have been reaching for some other narrative yeah just like i am lord you know there's that famous painting in the 19th century they always put it on nietzsche which is funny to me sometimes where it's like a man standing above the clouds yes. triumphant you know the, yeah, yeah, up on yeah like the mountain up on the mountain yes. and that's and that's the view of human reason from the 19th century that cordova is talking about that like yeah i think that's still at work pretty hardcore today i just think that the threats to that are so strong to make it, it a laughable viewpoint almost <laughs> middle of january in utah it was 50 degrees this week 
The bike came back out. Yeah. Uh, the motorcycle. Yeah, Preston was a great motorcycle. Yeah, the bike came back out. And as joyful of an experience as that was, I'm sure it was also a little uncanny. There, There's a little bit of guilt in enjoying the ride at a time when I should not be riding. Yeah. So, the crossover between the Christian worldview and the Enlightenment... I'm calling it the Enlightenment view, but you could call it the humanist view, is the view of nature as mm. as like the mere stuff instead of a equality of not just objects but other beings other thought processes yes there's so many to thought processes today that come from the dominant philosophical culture that are more close to what cordova is is um describing I, I i'm thinking of object-oriented ontology as just one example which is like you know there's books like the world of things um you know graham Harmon has this quote which is like you know if you if you subscribe to my like this philosophy i'm paraphrasing him horribly but it's like you will eventually discard the notion that there's people who are inherently less able mentally or otherwise because there's an infinite disclosure to different objects based on mm. based on his view of metaphor and the way reality works. And I, I think that's one school of thought that Cordova is closer to, even if she reaches it from a completely different place. Yeah. I mean, I, in the way Cordova, like, describes, you know, this Christian belief, I think this is, like, one of the reasons why I've enjoyed philosophy so much is like everything about the church is like boiled down to like this is the answer and it's all the same thinking there's nothing original going on because yeah. it's all just the same cycle over and over again yeah so yeah you know, like reading these vastly different viewpoints and thought processes that like had never even crossed my mind as a possibility. Yeah. Because you're taught for so long that this is the right way. Why would I bother with thinking other ways? This is the right way. I already found it. Of course we're a fallen creature, which you realize later is just like some narrative that's been internalized. It's like, wait, we made that up. Someone said, you're a fallen creature. Oh, I must be a fallen creature, oh, you know, yeah. Yes, instead of inherently just, flawed and, you know... Instead of whatever else you want to in say. In need of saving from an extraterrestrial. Mm -hmm. There's also a crossover there in the humanism sense. She she makes the point that, like, the the Freudian drive point, like, we're, we're fallen because of our id, right? Like, we're fallen because of our drives, mm. you know, that's the... Although I would, um... I think there's more of a kernel of what I believe in the idea that we're not slaves to the drive in psychoanalysis. You know, there's a path towards recognizing, you know, there's a where it was there I shall be, which is some people think it's in, in that's a Freud quote where it's some people take it as where the id was there, the ego shall be like, but I take it more as where it was, meaning whatever traumatic event, I'm going to get there. <laughs> mm. Whatever that sitch was. 
Um, so I think there's more saving power there, but I do think that that you could almost go further in the in OG views of um, Darwin, right? Like uh, social Darwinism, the idea that some people have like more of a capacity for hierarchy and uh, production yes. and moving forward yeah. than others because of their like income level and back, ethnic background. Yeah. And I think that would be a perfect one that sometimes still shows up. I mean, it even shows up in the in COVID when it was like there were Republicans that were like, we can just let the elderly all die. You know, it's like a sacrifice. Some of you may die, but that's a sacrifice to the economy. That's we're a just, sacrifice we're just gonna I'm do. willing to make. <laughs> and I think that's a little... I mean, I, I, I just think of that as another guise of social Darwinism. Ooh. Like, we're just, they're not valid because they're past the age of economic production. I, <laughs> you, know? you know, at <laughs> some point, a Republican politician was like, look, you guys, this is a win. We can eliminate all these people on Social Security. We just got to frame it right, all right? Yeah, and of course, they're, it's kind of dumb because then that's their own voting base. <laughs> right? That's why, it's oh. sort of, that's why it's sort of a death cult because it's like... Well, that's the pe that's your people, but bro. who that's is going to vote for us? <laughs> yeah, it's like we got to save some of them. <laughs> okay, that's horrible. But so she does this thing, which I've I've actually seen happen. And if you engage with um, Native American literature and other um, indigenous practices, there is um, a lot of internal conflict about the idea of belief. There is often a sense that there are secrets that belong to the culture. Mm. And, but the problem, Cordova finds with that is in this just the best moment of the essay, right? Right? It's the best moment where she says, you know, like, she makes a generic native figure. And the Native American exists in a world of his own making, and in order to survive, he must learn other ways of dissecting the world. He arms himself with Western concepts so as not to alarm his potential non-Native American listeners. He maintains his own view for discussion with his own kind. Hmm. And then there's, I just wrote uh, a caesura, because then she just launches in. Human nature does not revolve around a fall from a deity's favor. <sighs> Love it! <laughs> it just jumps ah! right in. And so it's like, clearly, that's she's not taking that position. There is no prison-like sentence of a specific time in which he must redeem himself in the eyes of a deity. I liked that. Yeah, it's weird. It, like, picks up on a sort of... I think I think in the more traditional continental theory, there's, a, there's an ilk of some of what she's saying in late Heidegger of the... He's been called sometimes like a like a you know hyper social philosopher, and so when she says human this beings entire, are of the flock, this entire paragraph is amazing. Oh yeah, oh yeah, the whole and, thing. Yeah, yeah, the whole thing is great. Um, you know, human beings are part of the flock, like geese, a herd, like some animals. He more so than any other being is tied to his group through language, and I think that's that's like the big argument that she makes for the essay. This, um, the earth has produced him as a group to occupy a certain area. 
There are other groups occupying other areas. Each new being is trained to be a specific kind of human being according to the group's definition of what it is to be a human. Yeah. And what it and and that also implies her her notions of time. So like she makes it very important to the Christian worldview the time of Christianity as something that colonizes you and makes you enculturated. Mm. Um I don't think that is a very strong hold anymore. <laughs> I, I like that it's starting to break down more. Yeah. I mean, I just don't, I mean, I, I, I mean, what am I talking about? I'm, I'm a, you know, I, I work at an independent bookstore and, and spent most of my time growing up at universities. So the, the space of my humanity is going to look very differently than someone who was born in rural Kentucky, you know? Born in Salt Lake City. Born in Salt Lake City. I mean, even coming here in Salt Lake City, you just immediately notice certain behaviors that are taken as normalizing. Like, uh, like, you know, I moved to a new neighborhood and one person was like, okay, what, what like ward do you belong to? And I said, I'm not Mormon. And then it was just like, chose not to hear that. Well, I'm part of the blank ward. And it's like, okay, well, I'm from Michigan. And, like, my nearest neighbor was Hindu, or, sorry, not Hindu, Buddhist. Um, actually, the first around the block was, was Hindu. And my two buddies were Catholic. One of them left the church, the other stayed in. And my mom was a Scientologist, so have fun assuming someone's belief. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, you're just not, it's not going to work, you yeah. know? I mean, in Utah, though, where, like, 75% of your population is a part of the same church. Yeah. And, you know, like, the other 10% are offsets of said church, and then you got this other little block of everybody else in there. Yeah, and so, like, everybody else in Utah, you immediately have an affinity for people who don't believe anything that you believe because they're just not Mormon. Yeah. So like, it's like, Oh, there's the Hindus, the atheists, the, the, the Protestants. And you're like, well, yeah, but those aren't like similar belief structures in any way. Yeah. <laughs> they all have their own, as we say time. And I, I think that the, the other thing I noticed about Mormonism, and this is something that you cannot fail to notice, especially if you teach in Utah is the endlessness of your station you you don't get a break anymore you don't get like a, oh and then and then we actually you have you know the, the day of rest still from other christian sects but you don't have the heaven as ultimate resting place you have more work to do so the time there is totally different from other sects of christianity you see but you'll <laughs> think about work differently it's all you'll want to do in heaven is continue to serve God, because what could be better than serving God all the time? There's a there's a there's a video game, Alice Returns, and there's a there's a section in the dreamscape where a mouse is shouting slogans, and it's like, "Utilize your time, time for work, then you'll have time for more work." And yeah. It's the same sort of thing where it's like, yeah, but like to do what? Like, what's the point? Like, why? What not there at the end of the day an escape from signification that heaven is supposed to give you? Or hell, I mean, really. Or purgatory. I mean, really, for that matter. Like, you, you have this work to do, but the idea of actual death is, I think, beyond 
any more squabbles between the placement of Jesus versus Lucifer, whatever is there, that to me is the major cultural difference is the idea of, oh, well, you know, then you get the stewardship of a planet. And it's like, so what if I just like don't like work? You know, if you're in another Christian sect, you're fine. You just don't. What, you what if I just like yeah. want to smoke and watch cartoons all day in heaven? I think in a lot of other Christian denominations, Sure. Sure. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's like okay. There's not. It, it's not an. It's not an ethical imperative to this hyperactivity. Hyper, and it, and it obviously it's an offshoot of of American um, Protestantism of of you know the, the the Protestant work ethic and everything. But it takes on a sort of obscene character when it invades your afterlife. <laughs> Oh, it was like one of the earliest cracks. I still remember my mom telling me that like, oh yeah, and it'll be like church every day. And I'm like, wait, every day? Forever? That's heaven. So if I do all the things right yeah, and jump through all these hoops, I get to go to church every day? That sounds like hell. I was like, I think I'd just rather prefer non-being. Can actually. I, like, like, shoot for second place? That sounds a lot nicer. Yeah, the other worlds sound better. In I'd rather hang out in paradise and have missionaries try and convince me to go to the other place than, you know, spend my life uh, going to church every day. Well, I think it also, it's kind of a weird inversion on the idea of like, so you're, like you have all this guilt because the narrative of you as a fallen object has pervaded your, your whatever culture it is. I'm just kind of drawing like a straw man here but like so then luckily christianity comes in to unburden you of that activity and mormonism unburdens you but gives you a project where another and again this is going to be different whatever era you're in but like you know the -the run-of-the-mill left-wing christian church is closer to an idea of like togetherness version of christianity and less concerned with the project of virusing the world with the, you know what i mean like spreading out everywhere to all sects so that everyone has more work to do <laughs> no that by the way i'm saying that's a really negative thing there are some obvious real positives in living in salt lake city um for some reason there's always road work which kind of is like i always take that as an ideological signifier where it's like there's all this road work but it never gets done right darn <laughs> uh, our state tree should be an orange cone. Right, yeah, yeah. The state tree should be an orange cone. And then, but on the other hand, you have great city planning. When something needs to be done, there is still the occasional decree where, okay, we'll do the big thing. And then the big thing happens because, you know, there's this group think, but there's also this project to be done. So I, I don't want to discount uh, people who are LDS from the project of, saving the lake you know like put that put that to work right you know go ahead start I, working <laughs> i am i, I am gonna and throw they kind it out of, there they sort of have started so you know for a multi-billion dollar organization they could be doing a hell of a lot more but then there's also this edge i just can't ignore of they're also waiting for the end times yeah and who knows? Maybe you can find something that the lake drying up is part of the prophecy and they're just... 
Oh, that's I've been saying this for years. She's just gonna right? let it happen. So the ideological marker, and this is broad, broadly true, not of just a, a lot of the conservative portions of the LDS Church, but also of evangelical Christians in America, which is climate change isn't real. You convince them, oh, they got this data, we got this. Oh, you know what? I'm even happier because thank God it's the rapture. Yep. There's no, there's no like version of the narrative where you can like do a thing to save the day right it's like you have all avenues foreclosed even if in the freudian you know stealing the pot uh the kettle story where it's like i stole the kettle or no no a guy borrows a friend's kettle and the friend never gets his kettle back so he goes to the guy who borrowed it and he said hey i think you you know still have my kettle and the first version of it is he goes, oh, I, you know, I lent it to a friend. And the second one is like, oh, I think someone else or whatever. I don't remember it. But then the third one is I never borrowed your kettle. And he's using it to elucidate what happens in the unconscious. But that's also what happens in the way that the ego decides to just foreclose on any possibility, mm. even if those options both can't be true. <laughs> you know, it's like... There's other options, or, or it's not the limited scope of what could be happening. So there's not the full scope of what could be happening. But yeah, getting back. Okay, so in the essay, um, in her positing of a native version of human time, all of our objects are not mere objects. What's the way she describes it? It's like they're. They're equal, of course, but they're equal in a way that's very specific. So humans were but one of the many species of beings that coexisted equally, all dependent on the mother, the earth, for their sustenance? Yeah. Humans differed from other flocks in that they had language the better to bond the group. Um, they saw themselves as existing in a web of highly interrelated and interdependent substances, air, water, other beings, the land. They maintained their life force by ingesting the life force of other beings. No less respect was due a wild onion than a deer. Eat it, my father would say to us. We took its life that we might continue our own. Eating was a holy sacrament, the thanksgiving to the creatures that provided us life. Yeah, there it is. And that, if you think about it, what's kind of funny about it is that um, there's sort of a funny disconnect. Funny meaning like racist, but like a disconnect between the native as stuck in place versus the native as providing a better mentality moving forward. Absolutely. (laughs) Right? Like a way in which, you know... She doesn't say it, but, like, the individualism of American culture is at odds with what the essay outlines. Absolutely. But, I mean, she backs that up by mentioning that, you know, Native American language are languages of verbs. The nouns depict a world of stasis. Something is. So it's happening. It's, it's perpetual motion forward. So I think it it's, it's a very interesting disconnect yeah. when like the very basis of this philosophy seems far more 
productive movement oriented and yeah yeah like uh it's like Deleuze where it's like it's like you know a series of becomings instead of yes it's far more progressive this ground is the ground and it's just there because thank god for gravity i can stand on it or something you know like (laughs) instead of the human is what moves everything moves i mean oh and then she goes into it with a metaphor of the magnets the spinning I just pictured fidget spinners when I was reading this spot, but like the idea that you think of a, of a moving disc and you're the moving disc and then every other object is a moving disc and then you make a sort of machine, which just is Deleuze at that point, right? Like then we've made our, we've the, made our smooth and striated configuration of machines, right? The, like, the vortice, the vortices. I think is what, they, is what she calls it. Uh, but yeah, imagine she's tops about, among yes. tops, vortices, if you will, so that there is no space between the spinning tops. And imagine also that all the spinning things on the top, in the top, have an effect on the spinning. I I, mean, I, I like that analogy a lot. I think it's a, a lot more apt to the way a lot of this, uh, our thinking, our interactions with each other. Yeah. Than... Uh, the uh, more solid thinking of, especially like Christianity, it's it's stuff based on a book hundreds of years old. Thousands. And we still have people quoting Bible verses to prevent LGBTQ. Right, but they're always they're always relying on rights. the it's, yeah, but they're they're relying on the image of eternity or not the image the the simulation of their version of eternity and not like because any argument they're going to use anyone anyone will use quoting a bible verse is ultimately about something to do or not do now (laughs) and it's like you're just using the weight of time as baggage Mm. for your argument well the word of god is eternal yeah there's a lot of smart do you think they said that about like a lot of dead religions too like old civilizations the word of the, the word, word of, of Ra is eternal and that's why we know all his teachings i mean i think you i think you could take it further and say that that would be that would be a necessary component of you know so like for example for for our necessary component here one of the ones she talks about is personal responsibility because you're one of the spinning discs Mm. And you have the capacity for more movement in her analogy. You know, so she says in all capital letters, I am responsible. Mm. I like her capital letters. She does it, uh, her and Anne Waters do it in the opening too, where it's like, it has been the experience of the American indigenous peoples to be spoken of and for and not with. And I think that's sort of a taboo in academic writing. You know, you don't have a lot. I mean, it's not a big taboo, but it's like a tiny, you know, you don't, you don't have the full... It's punchy. It's kind of like, not like in, yeah, you don't include exclamation marks a lot, you know, because, oh, that's too emotional or something. <laughs> it's not yeah. stylistically appropriate. I, and I, I'm, I'm saying that as a person, of course, who is does not give a shit about that at all. <laughs> I care more about personal expression than I do about yes. some random journal's stylistic requirements. Agreed. Yeah, I think, like, um, another thing that's really absent from this that I think is a white person invention 
is the the sad native. <laughs> They're just so sad. They sit over there and it's sad. Mm. Instead of like, well, yeah, like that that group might be sad on that part of the reservation because the government took away its water access or something, you know, it's not like, but I think what white, white narratives do about native Americans is they say they're sad. Mm. Like, and as the word of God is that the native peoples are static and sad. It's even in an attempt to like show, you know, remorse and pity or whatever you want to call it. I still think it's incredibly othering. Yeah. It's, it's still treating them as, less than human. Well, and it makes it makes their sadness or whatever situation they happen to be in or whoever it is, it makes that a defining feature of what they should view themselves yes, as. Yes, it makes it like a cultural staple. Yeah. I I think that's actually a cross connection between rural poor white culture as well. The narrative of being stuck. You know, reading Faulkner, there's so much of this the South has fallen economically and and there's this the plight of the poor rural white instead of anything else i mean mean, it's funny i went to reach for something but what i would reach for would be what someone we read from a cultural placement would would say Hmm. right because that would be the only way not to other the person is like oh yeah what do they say i mean we've got we've got on this with zizek right he used the example of like chinese views of Tiananmen Square, but he never actually talked at length about yeah, what the views of that are in modern culture. Dive into that? <laughs> Which is terrible. I mean, that's just not... That's something... Some very concrete thing we as theorists can go... Don't do that. <laughs> do some, do literally anything else. Do the same example, of course, but then you have to go do work. You have yeah. to go and talk to people. Yeah. You have to go be a researcher. God damn it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh, but I, um, I like with the, uh, following up on, like, the I am responsible part is, uh, when she talks about the future does not exist. Because that's another thing in Christianity is the the future is set. Yeah, it's set in stone. God knows everything. The future is set. Um, but the future does not exist. I have not yet made it, contributed to it. My present actions are making it. Present actions are like layers of snow added to a snowball. The shape of the present outer layer determines the future shape of the whole. Right, which is much more existentialist. Much more... Well, I'm the type of being that has... Since I have more inherent power than this table although i guess than I, most other animals and most other animals dog, i'm referencing a table that gives you a larger top that spins to make other top spin yeah exactly and i think that's fine i think i think that the most important thing for me from the essay is that is just any positing that she would do from the internal sphere instead instead of the critical engagement with Christianity and secular thinking is great, but I think the real point is to add other views of time as part of the table. Mm. Um, 
Because I, I think that, like, a lot of... In, I mean, we've read so much continental theory, we, I don't think either of us would ever say this, but, like, I think there's a lot of thinkers out there that think that what reason is is, like, a lightning bolt that comes to cut through with a violent bolt to to kill all the bad beliefs and mm. you know i think like like for example I, I, I think of like the four atheists uh, the four new atheists like richard dawkins where it's like he goes into like places where he's the obvious like good guy to the culture at large to try and tell some really really closed off culture that the earth is more than four thousand years old and it's not flat and there's no firmament or whatever and i think that's good don't get me wrong i just I think that where the usefulness ends is that viewpoint cannot tell you anything about art. Ooh. Like it can't tell you anything beyond some sort of correct versus incorrect and then correcting the bad to place with the correct. Yeah, that, that sounds like great art to me. Yeah, just like, this is wrong, this nope. is right. No, nope. wrong, <laughs> wrong, nope. Yeah, that's art, nope. And it's like, I think that it inherently makes art a display of having won the battle oh. on the side of reason than it does any other way that art would. You know, there's so much now art environmentally that engages in a way that I think Cordova would approve of with your surroundings. There's this place called The Place Where You Go to Listen by John Luther Adams, which is um, it takes data from the, I think, I think it's the weather and it sounds this data out in real time to pitch content from synthesizers. So you're kind of listening to the movement of the winds or whatever. Huh. And already you have a deeper engagement with your surroundings, I think. Hmm. I mean, I have a problem with a lot of environmental art because it thinks the environment is slow. Like most of the music that's environmental or ecological often sounds slow to me um i don't know why that is a pretty big spectrum on yeah it's like it's like pace of nature the hummingbird doesn't get as much uh, airtime as the glacier i guess (laughs) i mean i don't know you know volcano is super slow and super fast like there's a lot of diversity you could go from just all slow yeah, uh, that's just a broad critique. Mo- a lot of music doesn't fall into that trap, and it's still environmental. But John Luther Adams certainly does. A lot of his, his music is is slow. There's there's a lot of great. Pe- I think there's one among Red Mountains that doesn't do that. There's other pieces of his that escape that problem. But but I think that Cordova's view- vision of the future for the whole, not just for native thinkers or white thinkers, is to rethink whatever your own implied sense of time is. Hmm. I, I, I like that. Like, I mean, I think it fits with a lot of the same reasons we're reading all this other stuff from just a completely different point I don't think I'd have approached before is, you know, altering my very concept of viewing time. Yeah. I think like um, I think that another thing that she agrees with is the modern biologist, evolutionary biologist, who, you know, like for example, an uninformed person usually would say something like uh, humans are higher evolved, and like 
you know, I, you'd rush in to critique them, and it's like, everything's evolved. <laughs> Everything that's living has evolved to situate itself where it is. I mean... There, I mean, there's a conflict, obviously, that progresses it forward, but it, it, it has evolved. It doesn't mean that that evolution is a climbing staircase. Otherwise, yeah, my I, I appendix would do more right now, There'd right? be an argument that... You could make an argument that a lot of other animals are, like, sharks and crocodiles are better evolved than human beings. They're perfect animals for their environment. Or like bees, right? Like like the, the machinery. Yeah. Bee, bees don't have neuroses. Ants? Yeah, ants. Yeah, like there's not... If you wanted that... But I think I think a better way is just not to make those type of value judgments. Yeah. On like I, another I, species. I think You're already it's fun. off on the wrong step. I mean, there, there are fun ones. Like everyone piles on the koala where it's like their food poisons them. To make them slow. <laughs> and, like, there is a funny aspect where you can still make certain value judgments about random species. And and that's fine. It's just the, the bigger thing is when we make... You, you know, you ever hear the argument that humans are perfectly evolved? I've heard that. <laughs> and you're like... Uh, I don't know. Uh. <laughs> I mean, I could reference biological, like, vestigial organs, right? But you could also just reference the idea of if we were in a sense perfectly evolved then no one would have a therapist we wouldn't be doing any of this i don't think we'd read any of this <laughs> yeah it's like well and then you know people would make the argument like you know like, like in, in you're broadening yourself for a higher consciousness and i think i think that's fine but i also think that like when we're talking evolution it's not good to just start talking about human excellence in this way that makes us stand out. I don't know. I we stand out in plenty of ways. It's fine. Like, but you know, <laughs> I don't think it's anything special. I definitely subscribe a little bit more to the uh, chaos side of things. That just random shit happened at the right time, and yeah. Well, I mean, there's a difference we between saying we're smart. And make art and everything, and that's great. And then being like, you walk up to a platypus and you're like, yeah, fuck you, bro. I got Mahler <laughs> or something. <laughs> like, I don't know what, like, what what are we doing here, you know? <laughs> it's gonna, platypus just like, goes. Well, I'm a mammal it. with a beak. Fuck you. Yeah, like, I don't know. Legs. I have a poisonous spike. Fuck you. You don't have no poisonous spike, you know? <laughs> I glow blue in UV. What do you do? Yeah. I, uh, so overall, I liked it. Um, so before we stop, I want to move away from the essay and talk a little bit about progress that we can do that's just so simple. I mean, obviously, it's not just highlighting Native American thinkers. I think that's fine, although there is sort of this aspect of, like, see, we looked at some... Native thinker, whatever, moving back to French people. And I think that, like, for me over the last year, I've kind of been making this change towards idea equality. That mm. we're going to, I mean, obviously we're starting to do it now. But, like, that there's a sense in a lot of podcasts, including ours up to this point, although we did the Cage and we did the Haraway and then we did the Cairo Narby, which don't fit this model, that the type of thinkers we're looking at is thinking. <laughs> mm. And I think that, like, the only way you can just get out of that first step 
is to to really think that France is a place and a time with a limited, yes. <laughs> you know? Um, so I think moving forward, for me, progress would be that Cordova becomes a name that we integrate in our references the same way Freud. Oh, well, wait a minute. Cordova would say, I think that's more of a step forward than the aspect of paying lip service. Agreed. I mean, because do the work to broaden the voices at the table, right? Yeah, I think it's, I don't think it's that hard. I think there's a block for a lot of people because they're afraid of saying the wrong thing or they're afraid of doing the wrong thing. But the, the worst thing people can do is not engage. Yeah. You know? I mean, I, it's kind of like the big point of the podcast is we're not professionals with a seat at the table, but it shouldn't discourage people from exploring this shit. Yeah. And at least talking about it without having a degree in it. Yeah, I think that's right. And I also think it's interesting. On the one hand, Cordova is recognized as an important thinker in New Mexico. There's like a lecture series in her name. But that doesn't translate to outside publication. So we're reading a very inside publication. I had to, you know, find the PDF. Luckily, the, the journal's open access. So, I, you know, they've already done this work in a really meaningful way of anyone can go and go to the APA newsletter on American Indians and philosophy and read 20 years of thinking. Mm. And that's fucking great. But the, the, where it's sad is, you know, I went like, okay, well, I want to like go look at books and everything that aren't just $400 University of Pittsburgh textbooks or whatever. And like, they're out there. There's one book that's cheaply available from VF Cordova. We'll obviously read it at some point. But in general... You have to do some more labor than if you just Google philosophers. Oh, yeah. And I think that real success would be that when you Google philosophers, amidst the Foucaults and the Aristotle, you get Ann Waters and V.F. Cordova. So. That would be nice to see. Well, cool. I mean, that's all I got. I had a great time reading with you, Preston. Yeah, this was a good one. I uh, enjoyed it a lot. Hopefully we can... Uh... You know, explore some different timetables and change our timetables. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that's in the cards. Alrighty, until next time. <laughs>